Today on the Danalytics, we traverse into the darkness. And we'll take a look at it. Traditionally, we'll look at demons and, and the shadow and how I was always taught to fear. Most people have taught to fear. And then take a look at it from a different angle as aspects of ourselves and companions and so thank you for joining me today so let's begin the story of king solomon conjuring and capturing demons is an ancient tale going back to the first century the legend goes that solomon summoned 72 demons using a specific invocation then questioned them and put them to his service according to their abilities and powers some variants of the legend say the demons were used as beasts of burden to help build Solomon's temple. When he was finished with the demons, Solomon trapped them in a large brass bottle-like vessel, then sealed the vessel with a secret sigil that would prevent the demons from escaping. Solomon threw the vessel into the deep lake in Babylon, where it remained until some local treasure seekers found it and broke it open. Of course, this act released the demons into the world, where they are free to torment mankind. So, leading to the general understanding as people go that demons are spirits that straddle the border between the physical earth and the lower spiritual realms. And that centuries, mystics and magicians have attempted to converse with the dark spirits of the other world. And dozens of books have been written explaining how to conjure spirits and demons. Separated by time and geography, different magical traditions, traditions have arisen that each have similar but distinct instructions for drawing summoning circles, for creating talismans, or protecting it, protection and invocations. These are the original rites performed by the legendary King Solomon, a leader and mystic of the ancient world, who was reportedly the first and most successful conjurer to call forth and control these entities. The, uh, the invocations are activated by simple act of turning or otherwise moving these symbols similar in the way to Tibetan prayer wheels and flags and prayers to the world. Demons are opposed by angels who straddle the border between our physical world and the heavens. Each demon has a specific angel ruling over it. And you will find the names of these angels written on the card under the demon's name. As above, so below. Demons and other lower spirits are intensely jealous of human beings because we are capable of enjoying a physical existence, something they will never be able to do. This jealousy will cause them to sometimes seek to harm, to make their lives more difficult, but we have power over them. The conjurer's most potent weapon against the demon is knowing its name. If you know the demon's name, then you have proven that you know something that is true. If you know one truth, you may know all truths, and therefore the demons will fear you and obey your commands. It is from this power that you can wield the occult and get the spiritual energy to work for you rather than against you. And always make a proper offering without the proper offering demons may not answer and your workings may not be productive you select something simple that shows respect to the demon and will attract your presence the offering should be made that is both valuable to the conjurer and desirable to the demon so this is sort of the the way that it's the general layout of, of how it's always been introduced is like to be controlled but the the concept of it being more like a metaphor or an aspect of ourselves sort of insteps the, uh, the Ars Goetia.
Ars Goetia, the magical practice designed for evoking and invoking demons. The goal is to reawaken and modernize the sacred practice via deeply esoteric and ceremonial tarot, where each demon becomes not only an arcanum, but also a source of connections and associations that will allow you to descend into the depths of your subconscious, right where your shadow has teeth, claws, and horns. With much research, we're going to accomplish this. There's no reason to interpret this descent or fall in a negative way. Demons are in fact a great deal closer to us than any god or divinity. But unlike gods and divinities, they have no unfathomable motivations, gratuitous hatred, or mysterious reasonings. A demon is our direct reflection that feeds on our emotions and takes its image from them. Thus, if we face it with fear and hatred, it will be terrifying and abominable. Whereas if we face it with humanity and respect, it will be humane, respectful, and completely at our service. Evil in and of itself does not exist. It is merely an absence of good. The search for our brightest light must go through the deepest darkness. The night is darkest just before the dawn. Since the days of old, the Goetia has always represented the damned and obscure counterpart of the luminous and divine field of theurgy. Theurgy was set on invoking divinities via a series of rituals, gestures, formulae, or symbols. And throughout centuries, there have been many attempts to classify and use these spirits following certain criteria, such as the nature of the demon, their rank in the hierarchy, or their domain. These attempts feature in various manuscripts of uncertain origins, such as the book of Abramelin, Le Dragon Rouge, um, the Occulta Philosophia, the Lantern of Light, and many others. In the Middle Ages, however, the difference between the two practices, Goetia and Theurgy, became increasingly less discernible. The very etymology of the word Theurgy, to act like God, makes the practice sound like an affront, a presumption, or an offense, something incredibly similar to the concept of Lucifer. He who was not only refused to submit himself to God, but even tried to rise to his level. Moreover, with the onset of Christianity, it was unacceptable for this practice to be available to all. Free and open to the people, it had to be mediated by the proper hierarchical class that made up of priests, bishops, cardinals, or popes, who otherwise would have lost most of their utility and purpose. For this reason, all the practices were forbidden, considered unacceptable, malignant, pagan, and all the demons were considered to be much like Lucifer, fallen angels, corrupted and corrupting, horrible and shape-shifting. Consequently, this art took on the derogatory name of Ars Goetia. The practice made a reappearance in a 17th century grimoire called the Limageton Clavicula Solomonis, the Lesser Key of Solomon, attributed to King Solomon. The Ars Goetia reached us today thanks to this grimoire, taking on new, more or less altered or lengthened forms throughout the centuries, like the Infernal Dictionary of Jacques Auguste Simon Colin de Plancy, or the more recent Bible of Satan by Anton LaVey. With this, we'd like to propose or merely suggest a point of view on demons that is foreign to superstitious, to religious or popular traditions, which have often transformed them into evil entities with the single purpose of influencing mankind in a negative manner, corrupting us, leading us astray, and in the worst and most folkloristic hypothesis, even entering our bodies to use as puppets for their own nefarious purposes. 
What you will find here is a more laic conception, if you will, or better yet, a psychological one, of their nature and their influence. A conception that befits their original role, where a demon was nothing but an intermediary between man and God. In Greece especially, they were considered to be forces that could elevate man, intermediaries between the high and the low, especially when conscious, rational, and logical thought was no longer enough. They were also seen as beings that watched over man, sharing his sentiments. Gods, divinities, and demons are nothing but the form that humankind has given since the beginning of time to concepts that would otherwise be incomprehensible to us. Difficult to accept, use, and spread, such as death or the void that preceded the whole manifest world before even space and time. This form has evolved, differentiated itself, becoming even more complex and articulated alongside the evolution of man throughout the centuries. We went from the first representations of the sun and thunder, perhaps crudely etched out in improvised tools in a cave, to giving them not only anthropomorphic features like those of Ra and the son of Odin, Thor, but even complex familial webs like that of wonderful Hindu religious iconography, often associating everything with more synthetic and schematic symbols. To better understand this concept, we merely need to think of how we use this method in mathematics, physics, or chemistry. In these sciences, the use of symbols and schematic representations is useful not only for summarizing and understanding vast, complicated concepts, but also for articulating them, combining them, and ever more complex operations and formulae with the goal of applying them in practical everyday life. We have achieved many feats, and we owe our ability to organize and order our thoughts using symbols, allowing us to use abstractions like that would otherwise have been impossible to make complete and efficient use of, even or especially in practical material matters. In magic, the very moon is used, among other things, to symbolize the world of dreams and our subconscious, the one that we can reach by taking the 32nd path on the tree of life as once both symbolized and glyph of the entire universe or through Lilith and the Klipoth. In analytic psychology, Carl Jung coined the concept of shadow to refer to the subconscious and dark side of our personalities. The shadow is a side of ourselves that is pre-established and so deeply rooted that we cannot see it, but it constantly influences us in ways we cannot even imagine. And we are sometimes pro- sometimes project on others without even realizing various aspects of ourselves and end up in this dark side. Like moments from our past, trauma we never overcame, unattained desires, repressed fears, and phobias. Every once in a while, we may come to realize what we attract unhealthy relationships and we are stuck in the same dynamics, that we may act aggressively towards someone for no reason, or that we collapse before a challenge. We were certain that we were prepared for, unable to find the necessary assuredness to face a problem. The reason behind these challenges are often lie in how the shadow has programmed our personality and molded our character. This is why we are intrinsically more inclined toward regret, which activates a self-defense mechanism of denying responsibility as opposed to remorse, which would instead force us to admit the problems within us. The concept of shadow then evolved and expanded beyond the personal and temporal realm of the self, incarnating the concept, or the very essence of evil in the archetypal sense. Deep down in our subconscious, there is also our shadow, the assortment of aspects of our personality that are often considered negative, bestial, or instinctive. 
and are thus ignored and hidden, even forgotten. In some cases, these parts of our soul, instead of being accepted, get projected on others, or at the worst cases, attributed to external causes and sources like devils and demons, as some of the main monotheistic religions have done. These provide us a very convenient, extenuating circumstance, a scapegoat that allows us to affirm that it wasn't me. Someone else made me do it. The devil, perhaps. The truth, however, is far less convenient and decidedly scarier. Human beings are simultaneously capable of marvelous works of art, credible works of genius, and terrible cruelty, holocaust, and destruction. This complementarity is intrinsic in human beings, something viscerally etched into the matter that makes us and makes up the entire universe, where even two elementary particles, even in, if opposite and charged like a proton and electron, can court one another in a dance that can generate atoms and molecules growing into ever more complex structures, all thanks to this duality and separation. A positive pole cannot exist without a negative one, nor can a good without an evil, order without chaos, life without death, or light without darkness. As humans, we can give evil a synthetic and symbolic form to be used, understood or articulated within some wider context, just as we do with graphic and visual representations in mathematics or chemistry. Demons and devils have always performed this function until, as described above, they're transformed into an unproductive manner into something external and alien to us to be feared and dis distanced but any malignant spirit within human beings should be integrated, not exercised. The demon forms can be considered our direct reflections, modeled on our sentiments, our emotions, or on the mental constructs that we store and for one reason or another hide within our subconscious. The demon does not but feed on our deepest emotions, and the form it takes on, much like its character, behavior, and influence, depends on how we face it, and thus how we face our shadow. If we turn to them in hatred, distaste, distaste, and fear, they will be scary, reprehensible, horrifying, capable of burying us, blocking us, or making us do shameful things. If, however, we turn to them with respect, humanity, and understanding, they will be humane, respectful, and entirely at our service, to the point of becoming not only valid allies, but even an important source of creativity and an instinct that takes from the treasure chest of our subconscious, capable of changing us, and the way that we perceive others in the world, this conception can be found all around the globe. In the West, for example, we find in the words of Marcus Aurelius. Further remains the care not to defile the demon enthroned in his breast, nor perturb it with the crowd of images, but to preserve it in tranquility and obey it as a god, uttered no word contrary to truth, doing no act contrary to justice. End quote. We find the, the same introspective approach, although far less explicit, in the Orient with the words of Confucius. When you meet someone better than yourself, turn your thoughts to becoming his equal. When you meet someone not as good as you are, look within and examine your own self." End quote. Working with one's demons means facing one's fears, the parts of our subconscious that are difficult to converse with, but who, on the contrary, whisper to us every day without us realizing it, and can influence our choices in our lives, especially when we are panicked, tense, or anxious. Fear is one of the main sources of our negative qualities of evil in a wider sense of hatred, phobias, racism, intolerance, and that is why it is one of the easiest forms of control that oppressors, tyrants, and dictators can exercise to maneuver masses 
In fact, when we are born, in whatever country we are considered civilized, not only are we given illusions like a name, nationality, a career, a gender, a religion, but even what to fear like failing at work, mortality, or that which is different. Consequently, we will probably spend the rest of our lives defending or fearing these illusions without realizing it, since they sink to the depths of our consciousness. However, even fear may be illusory, and it exists only as a function of how we think about the future. We worry in the present about something that may never happen, even though the danger may be more real. In some circumstances, being dominated by fear is a personal choice that can only worsen the results of an already difficult situation. Moreover, if we carry around the series of archaic behaviors and prejudices that are obsolete reminders of the first stage of our evolution, and which served us when solving problems that have been solved by now, before we even lit our first fire or descended from the trees as evolved monkeys. This is the fundamental reason to directly look at our reflection in demons, to avoid making our world infernal, to free ourselves as much as possible from mental and social constructs that have been imposed on us and allow us for our deepest will to lo and to lovingly guide us. So the process that allows us to face our subconscious and our shadow in particular is called shadow work. It consists in bringing these repressed elements from the depths of our personalities to light using a language our subconscious can understand, like that of tarot, or in the field of psychology, for example, that of the ink blots of the Rorschach test. The purpose of the work is to allow us to recognize and accept our shadow, transforming it in something, into something that is not only positive and stimulating, but also a true, inexhaustible source of psychic and creative energy. So the Kabbalah, which in Hebrew means both to receive and tradition, is a vast collection of esoteric teachings whose purpose is to clarify the relationship, the dynamics, and the commonalities between the infinite, which is eternal and immutable, and the manifest, all that is finite and mortal. Moreover, these teachings are reputed to be fundamental for the pro proper and complete understanding of the Torah, which is the main fulcrum of Jewish tradition. This is why many refute it, or even call it heresy. The Kabbalah spread at the time, or at the same time as uh, Hasidic Judaism did in the 18th century, but it first emerged right after the first forms of Jewish mysticism. In province of the 12th and 13th centuries, and in Spain, where it is reinterpreted in the mystic Jewish rebirth of Ottoman Palestine in the 14th century, one of the main points of hermetic and esoteric Kabbalistic thought is the convergence between the divinity and humanity, who are no longer seen as separate and disjoint entities, but as manifestations of the same source, Ein Sof Ur, on different levels of emanation. There are 10 of these levels called Sephiroth, and there are 22 paths connecting them. These make up the abstract symbolic diagram called the Tree of Life. The glyph can be seen as a map or a program for the creation of the manifest world via a path of descent and downward coagulation towards the current material in concrete form. The energetic flow that passes from Sephira to Sephira, the singular of Sephiroth, occurs in this order. Kether, one, Chakma, two, Bina, three, Chesed, four, Gavura, five, Tiferet, six, Nezach 7, Hod 8, Yasad 9, and Melkuth 10. 
Each uh, Sephira is connected to the original divine source, and each is identified by a number of qualities and attributes. These ten emanations can also be seen as ten states of the human psyche, which become more and more difficult to experience and understand the more one climbs backward and upward, starting from Malkuth, the tenth sphere, which represents the material world, all the way up to the first sphere, Kether. Another particularly relevant point is that these ten Sephiroth can be organized and polarized along the three pillars, which, like the scale made of two dishes in central fulcrum, oscillate between creature and receptive impulses, feminine and masculine, positive and negative, in an eternal complementary dance. One can ascend and attain higher conscious only by understanding and integrating these apparently opposite components within us. Moreover, Hermetic Kabbalism is a meeting point for all branches of recent esoteric and initiatory thought. In addition to being the philosophy and structural basis behind many of the most important magic societies like the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, Thematic Mystics and the Rosicrucian Order, and the precursor of today's pagan or neo-pagan movements like Wicca or New and New Age. With this project, we took a particular interest in how Hermetic Kabbalah formed the basis of the Clifavic Kabbalah and its connection with tarot cards. Tarot cards are in fact considered the keys needed to access the Tree of Life, as the tw 22 major arcana and their meanings are connected to the 22 Hebrew letters and thus to the 22 paths that connect the 10 Sephiroth on the Tree of Life. Well, each Sephiroth is connected to the mi minor arcana. And to quote Carl Jung, No tree, it is said, can grow to heaven unless its roots, roots reach down to hell. <laughs> End quote. So, in Jewish Kabbalistic tradition, demons are tied to the tree of knowledge, the complement of shadow, uh, uh, complement and shadow of the tree of life, and its ten Sephiroth featuring Lilith, 11, Gamaliel, 12, Samael, 13, Arab Zarak 14, uh, Thagirion, 15, Golachab, 16, Gagashabla, 17, Satariel, 18, Gagiel, 19, and Thaumiel, 20. Before the manifest world, there was the Ein Sof, a premortal state that is difficult to describe and represents the original state of unity. The moment in which all of the universe, space, time, light, darkness, the subconscious were all concentrated into a negation, a space that uh, latently envelops everything but without truly existing, with no center or boundaries, this can be thought of as creation before its manifestation, or if you prefer, the universe long before the Big Bang. This is why nothing could exist outside of the Ein Sof, which comprised everything, and there was especially nothing for it to reflect itself in to become conscious of itself. We could then say that the drive for emanation came from the desire for self-awareness via an initial contraction called simsum, which was indispensable for the necessary void space in which to manifest itself, departing from the original unitary state to then specialize into individual entities separated from the creator. This separation, which is complementary to the desire for unity and reconciliation, left behind some areas in which the sacred energy of the Ein Sof had been, had been shells called Klipvath. These can be considered bubbles of anti-creation, or the shadow of the tree of life's emanations, which make up the opposite pole, the tree of knowledge. This is why the Klipvath, which have few things in common with what is called antimatter, 
in physics can be considered, uh, which have a few things in common with it, which can be, uh, with antimatter in physics can be considered the scrap of creation, an area of shadow whose depths hold treasures, sparks of divine light, which were generated then fell down after the process of breakage and separation. These sparks are the fallen angels who then became demons, which thus contain fragments of divine light, but light that can access, unlike the totality, that would be incinerate, or yeah, incinerate, uh, incinerate us in an instant, and light that mankind can use to open a discourse and understand how to elevate ourselves to be like God. The very myths and tales about the ruin of paradise on earth or the fall of Lucifer are the narrative of this process of the desire for independence and the ambition to be like God, to the knowledge of contained and a forbidden fruit and the following expo exposition separation from paradise or more generally the previous unity with the divine. The tree of life itself initially had a sphere of knowledge called Da'at which can associate with the fruit consumed in paradise on earth by man which after being consumed disappeared from the tree while the Melkuth sphere associated with the material world appeared and was thus considered impure and the forge of sin. The concept of a search, independence, self-defecation, uh, and elevation with a personal journey that crosses through the darkness is the fundamental basis for what is also called the left-hand path. For obvious reasons, this path is attributed to evil, to excessive ambition or affront towards divinity, uh, divinities, to a desire to separate oneself or even rise to their same level instead of aspiring to return and re reconcile with them. On the opposite end, there is the right-hand path, which is the path that can be attributed to the main monotheistic religions like Christianity, which encourages not only a personal and individual route, but to, f but to follow like docile and obedient sheep, a series of dogmas, prayers, or disciplines, with the ultimate goal of rejoining and dissolving into the divine, returning to the initial unity. But why should the left approach with its demons and fallen angels be seen in a negative or malicious light? If we observe the process of separation described above, it would actually seem that the universe itself is pushing us towards the individualistic or individualist left uh, path towards independence to evolve and elevate in a form, uh, elevate and from matter, um, which constitutes the reality that is apparently farthest from the abstract concept of God, a descent that keeps going downward. This is the direction indicated quite explicitly by the glyph of the flaming sword, a glyph that can be used in this project as a metaphor for the fall. The desire to cut the umbilical cord that ties us to the original source, to evolve and be reborn in a new form seems far more natural as opposed to desiring to re-sow this bond and re-enter via the uterus, once again in the creator's womb, to annul oneself and dissolve as the right-hand path teaches. When conceiving a child, much like when creating a work of genius or of art, one wants to see one's reflection in it, the understanding oneself better through one's creation. Every time we are moved by sunset, by a sunset, or by listening to the sound of the sea, it is nothing but the universe feeling moved by itself through us, seeing its existence. The more man is able to elevate himself toward divinity, the more divinity or the universe becomes aware of itself, its nature, and its potential. Matter looks upon itself from below and understands its own beauty, as it knows that it has knowledge, that it has matter and the universe, or that it is matter in the universe. 
It seems more legitimate then to affirm that the principle of separation destruction is not only the basis for creation, but also the necessary instrument that allows creation a new life. To become self-aware, it is the starting point for any path of illumination. Instead of something dark, malevolent, clephotic, impure, and sinful as the material world is considered. To quote Dion Fortune, manifestation takes place when the one divides itself into two, that act and react on each other. Manifestation ends when multiplicity is resolved or absorbed back into unity. End quote. The, demon, the demoness Lilith is considered the dark side of the tangible world, the one we can experience with our senses. The first Klipoth is also associated with this world. As the point of contact with the other side, this is why the first step for the initiate takes place on the tenth sphere. Malkuth associates with the material world, but instead of ascending to the ninth sphere, Yasad, they must open a new level, the eleventh, to free themselves from the vestige, vestiges of old creation in a gesture of cosmic emancipation towards a second birth, so that they themselves become the creator. As Goas Foss teaches us, understanding the rational and logical methods of thought and the language, trying to communicate with our rational side using the language of reason is as useless as trying to speak in Italian to someone who only speaks Japanese. One of the most inane common techniques of the past few years is that of positive thinking, which does nothing but frustrate and disappoint. Thinking positively merely represses the negative aspects of our personalities, forcing and restraining them to go towards the subconscious or, if you will, malnourishing our demons, which will become more and more hostile and will find ways to manifest themselves negatively using different routes. If we feel the need to cry, it is pointless to smile and sting because those tears will find ways to come out at another time, perhaps degenerating into another situation arising when we least expect it. Positive thinking is nothing but a, a puerile and superficial technique based on choosing what to contain and what to transform to one's own advantage through self-awareness, which by definition has no options. It is neither positive nor negative, it is free from choices. The most efficient way to start dialogue with our subconscious and our demons is to use their same language, composed of images, analogies, and symbols. Just as we introduce them in this, in this discussion, a language that human beings are well acquainted with every time we dream. In fact, the dream would allow us to understand how our minds work when they are free of any type of conscious restriction. Which is to say, through hallucinations that we watch passively, aside from the case of lucid dreams, and which, in a visual symbolic manner, give shape to our desires, fears, or memories of waking life, but also collective or archetypal content that comes from the primitive layers of our minds. This part of the subconscious that manifests itself in our dreams is active all the time, even when we are awake, which is why it is important to learn how to handle it, recognize it, and most importantly to learn, insert, and actively make use of the contents of this subtle world to benefit from its material in the waking life. In magic, this practice takes place in many ways and forms, and in tarots are, the, are one of these, a pantheon of symbolic and archetypal imagery it gives us a map of the human condition and its interactions, a mirror to show us obstacles of the past that still in the present, that, di that direction we want to take, 
or that stall in the present the direction we want to take in the future and that means of opening a dialogue with our dark side. Indeed, if bringing a subconscious and unknown problem or difficulty to light is a first step towards a solution, it is important for concrete action to follow to attain authentic healing. To give some aspects of our psyche an appearance and a symbol like that of a demon is to overcome the limits of logic and verbal language. To trust the unknown that resides within us, be it weakness, insolence, arrogance, or that which we fear and do not wish to accept, welcoming it and opening ourselves to dialogue. Once this communication has begun, the negative aspects of the demon that are sapping our energy can be inverted, while the positive ones can be amplified or expanded, transcending the mental barriers of our concepts or conscious mind to then influence it strongly. What we propose in this with sagacity, caution, and responsibility is thus not a mere reading. It is also an active process for a demon to become one's ally, counselor, mentor, the demon of the Greeks in an act that can be considered ritualistic, ceremonial, or to use the term coined by Alejandro Jodorsky, psychomagical. Prudence is necessary, especially if we are reading for another person believing that we are predicting or discerning a certain thing for them because in this way we are already generating or creating a, its fulfillment in the future and our action will become desire, obeying, directing, and inoculated orders because we are using an instrument that uses the same language as our subconscious. So each representation you find in the uh, Ars Goetia, it's a whole series of more or less traditional associations making use of different authoritative sources which will connect the fallen angels to other fields as well such as astrology planets tarot translated symbolically on each card every symbol related to a zodiac sign a planet as well as a demon sigil itself or its representation is not simply a compendium that will characterize in detail the character of each spirit but also a method to establish or understand our magical intent, which will work well only if our subconscious is trained to automatically recognize these representations. For this reason, it is fundamental to already have at least some knowledge of the various symbols, uh, an apprenticeship or previous initiary and in instruction because there's no magical power connected to a symbol. It is manipulation we carry out in our subconscious that makes a symbol magical. To quote Austin Osmond Spar, sigils are monograms of thought. For the government of energy, all heraldry, crests, monograms, are sigils and the karmas they govern. Relating to karmas, a mathematical means of symbolizing desire and giving it form that is the virtue of preventing any thought and association on that particular desire at the magical time, escaping the detection of the ego, so that it does not restrain or attach such desire to its own transitory images, memories, and worries, and allows it free passage to the subconscious, end quote. These symbols will establish a bridge between the conscious mind and the unconscious in order to allow us freedom to descend deep into ourselves where any other therapy is only partial. Grasping of mirrors and anesthetic are representing a postponement. Among the shadows, we will actively find our divine spark and that can cure us forever not a devil to sell our soul but a devil or demon to sell our soul in order to make us visible in all our glory communicate loudly with the universe letting it know what we want 
What we truly want and would make us happy and fulfilled seems almost always out of reach, extremely far from our possibilities, so much that we end up uh, veritably ashamed of our desires, our aspirations, so that we tend to choose a prudent path, a safe and in the light. Ironically, however, we also fail on the path that seems stable, protected, and bright, but that we basically do not want and never really part of our will. For this reason, it is important to give ourselves the chance to do what we love, running the risk of being seen in our full glory, working hard to achieve it, and taking a path that through darkness will bring out our light instead of spending our whole life reflecting that of others. To quote Jung, one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious." End quote. Free me, O Lord, from the terror of hell. Liberate me from the darkness of the abyssal larvae. Foul spirits I do not fear. Unto their abyss I descend to search for them without fright. I will impose my will upon them as law. To the night I shall say, generate the light. Rise, O sun, moon, be white and bright. To the infernal shadow I speak without fear. I will impose my will upon them as law. Horrendous is their face, their shape strange. I wish for the demons to return angels, when as a horde they heed my call. To unnameable monsters I speak without fear. I will impose my will upon them as law. Those shadows are the heirs of my frightened sight, but only I can heal their lightning-struck beauty. For into the abyss of hell I descend without fright. I will impose my will upon them as law. As the Ars Goetia. Hopefully with a new understanding. I feel the whole idea of repressing things just as this, as we said, they've come out in other ways. Like you can only choke up the the water so much if there's a hole in the spout it's gonna burst out wherever it is and oftentimes unpredictably uh, we shouldn't be told to cover up aspects of ourselves but learn to understand them and control them because when you repress things they tend to pop out understanding them helps you come to grips and control them and understand yourself so under, you know, this whole concept really pleases me and the, the, the idea of it to me provides hope. So hopefully, hopefully this provides some sort of like different alternative look and uh, perspective for others too. So, I mean, I've always had a, a, a penchant for darker art, darker music, darker all sorts of things, and it's like I never considered it really evil but you know, I see people fearing things and it's like all things have an, have an importance and all things are, you know, make up reality, you know, you create left, you create right, you create up, you create down, you create light, you create dark, you know, you create something's opposite by declaring something right? So for all important aspects and it's it's about finding finding the way to utilize it in a positive manner perhaps and understanding yourself well enough to to an accepting and, and loving yourself while not having to result to extremes 
behind the scenes or repressing yourself so much you lead to some sort of crazy outburst and go crazy on people. So, you know, balance, I suppose. But yeah, interesting stuff. And thank you for joining me.